The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 14, verses 24 through 52. We'll read those verses throughout the sermon. Right now, I want to read a, a few verses to begin with. From verse 24 to 28, and then 43 through 45. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb, and he put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. We'll jump down to verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so now I must die? Saul answered, God, do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance for Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Call the kids to the front for their children's sermon now. So the story that, that we just read shows us the difference between people who truly love God and those who only say they do. I hope you remember our story from last Sunday. Jonathan and his helper had snuck away from King Saul's camp and had climbed up to the camp of the Philistine army. And God gave victory to Jonathan so that he and his helper killed a bunch of the enemy soldiers, and then God confused the Philistines, and they started attacking each other. And so without Saul's army really fighting, the Philistines were beaten. God had given his people a great victory. Well, in our story today, Saul realizes that the Philistines are running all over the place in confusion, so he wants to attack their camp and take all their things. And that's a normal thing that armies do. This way, your enemy won't have food or supplies or weapons, and they can't fight anymore. But the reason that Saul wants to do this is so that everyone will see him as the hero. He doesn't want anyone thinking that Jonathan is a better leader than he is. He certainly doesn't want anyone to say, God has given us victory. He wants them to believe that he, King Saul, has given them victory. So what Saul does is he makes an order that no one in his army is allowed to eat until all the Philistine soldiers are dead. But listen how he says it. Cursed is the man who eats any food till evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. And in those words, we can see that Saul knows nothing of God. Saul is asking God 
to curse anyone who eats until the battle is over. But Saul doesn't think of the Philistines as the enemies of God. He calls them my enemies. So he's putting himself in the place of God. You see, if anyone is to be our enemy, it must be because they're God's enemies. There is a battle, a war between the church and the world. And the world is our enemy, not because we're so great, but because God is great and we serve him. The world is his enemy, therefore it is ours. Now, when Saul made this command, his son Jonathan wasn't there. He was out in the Philistine camp beating the Philistines. When he came back to Israel's camp, he was super hungry. Actually, all the soldiers were hungry and tired. Just then, as they were marching, they entered into the woods. And there was a tree with a beehive in it that had split open and honey was dripping out of it. So Jonathan took a little honey and ate it and he felt much better. But the people told him that King Saul had ordered that no one eat that day. And this made Jonathan angry. Jonathan understood that God had given his people victory so they should have taken the food and supplies of their enemies. This way, they would have been full and rested and could have beaten the Philistines even worse. But because Saul wanted to be the star, the hero, instead of giving the glory to God, his, his army suffered and many Philistines escaped. Well, later on, Saul asked his minister to ask God what they should do next. And God did not answer him. God had rejected Saul as king, so of course he wouldn't answer him. Saul was a very sinful man who did not want to obey God anyway. So by pretending to ask for God's instructions now, Saul was trying to use God to make himself into the hero. Saul decided, since God wasn't answering, it must be because somebody in Israel has committed a great sin. He decided to do something kind of like flipping a coin. Heads, it's me. Tails, it's you. And the coin landed against Jonathan. And so as we read, Jonathan told how he had eaten some of the honey. And Saul commanded that his own son, Jonathan, be killed for this. Jonathan the one by whom God had defended his people. And the rest of the army refused to do it. They all stood together with Jonathan against Saul, and so Jonathan's life was saved. And in this story, we learn that when people put themselves before God, their acts of worship always harm other people, always harm God's people. And so we must remember to think like Jonathan, and always give God praise for the good things that we receive in this life. Now we'll pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life, and may Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. May grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of thy Son, Jesus Christ. For his name's sake, amen. Well, we've entitled our sermon, Carnal 
religion. The term carnal in biblical language means according to the flesh in opposition to the spirit. True religion is a spiritual thing. And Saul's religion, as we'll see today, was a fleshly thing. It consisted in externals with no regard to the God to whom these acts were ostensibly directed. And therefore, it was a species of superstition, akin to witchcraft, actually, since it was an attempt to coerce God into action by the performance of acts which supposedly put God under obligation. When we left off last Sunday, Israel was about to chase down the confused Philistines. You'll recall that God confounded them and they were killing each other. So Saul and the army were going to take advantage of this to rout them and pillage their camp. Remember, Jonathan wasn't with Saul when this happened. Our outline is as follows. Number one, rash or unthinking religion, and that'll be from verses 24 to 30. Number two, self-serving religion, verses 31 to 35. And thirdly, spiritual blindness from verse 36 to 45. And so let's read verses 24 through 30 again for our first point, rash or unthinking religion. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? The hallmark of true worship is that it is biblical. God is to be worshipped as he commands. If I gave you something that you didn't want, I think it's safe to say that you would be pretty annoyed if I tried to guilt trip you into doing me favors because I had given you something that you didn't want in the first place. And that's what carnal worship looks like. Saul has no regard for God's will regarding worship. He's already violated the restrictions about sacrifice, and his minister is a deposed descendant of Eli. Our text today gives us more examples of Saul's carnal religion. And the first example that we see is this rash oath. In the heat of battle, when men most need their strength, Saul places them under a mandatory fast. It's a very odd thing. We've just read the Philistines are in confusion, running around killing each other. And the very next words, the first words of our text this morning is, now the people, the army of Israel was distressed. Now, a fast is a religious act. To fast is to abstain from food for a particular amount of time. 
And according to many passages in Scripture, fasting is for, is to, quote, afflict one's soul. That's a metaphor for repentance. It is a time to abstain from food and dedicate time to acknowledgement of one's own wickedness in the sight of God and to humble oneself by repentance. Pagan fasting is different. Their fasting supposedly obligates the gods to do their bidding. And that's why earlier I called it a species of witchcraft. Because in its most basic form, witchcraft claims to manipulate nature because the practitioner knows certain secrets of the natural realm. If I dance just right, the rain gods will manipulate the clouds into sending me rain. If I perform just the right act of worship, I obligate the gods into granting me what I want. And Saul's fast is clearly of this nature, because a true fast deprives self of gratification, and Saul's fast was for his gratification, until I am avenged on my enemies. He believes that their fast will bribe God into giving him victory. Now, when Jonathan finds out what his father has done, he says, my father has troubled Israel. He's comparing Saul to Achan, the infamous troubler of Israel from the book of Joshua. Israel was defeated before the little insignificant army of Ai because Achan had disobeyed God's command not to take spoil from Jericho. Many soldiers of Israel died that day because of Achan's sin. And many soldiers of Israel were in danger of dying this day because of Saul's impetuous oath. And this brings us to our second point, self-serving religion, and we'll read verses 31 to 35. Now, they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijalon. Now, that's about 20 miles. So the people were very faint, and the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. <coughs> Excuse me. Then they told Saul, saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Now right off the bat, we see the evil effects of Saul's rash oath. In their exhaustion and hunger, the army simply disregarded God's law. You see, under the Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace, eating blood was forbidden because blood was offered to God in sacrifice. Allowing the consumption of blood would have blurred the lines between what belonged to man and what belonged to God. And so the law stipulated that animals had to be thoroughly bled out before they could be cooked. Now, Saul appears to freak out about this breach of the law, and that leads us to a very important question. Why is Saul, as he grows more imperious, stubborn, and derelict in his duties as king and father, suddenly more religious? And the answer is not hard to find. Samuel had put a scare into him. 
Samuel told him, God has rejected you as king and found someone else. And that lit a fire under Saul. In his mind, his failure was that he hadn't been publicly religious enough. And rather than repent, King Saul goes on a tear of religious acts. There's not a hint of repentance. He is not in the least concerned about his unworthy behavior toward God. What he's concerned about is that his own interests have been endangered. And that's what makes him suddenly religious. And what King Saul did on the large scale, millions of obscure men have done on the small scale. Fear and selfishness often lie at the bottom of what passes for religion. Prayers, penance, vows, charitable donations have been treated as insurance premiums designed to save the soul from pain and punishment. And the sad part is that if things do not go the way the carnal worshiper hopes, he has the audacity to blame God. I have heard men with my own ears say that they quit going to church because they had made a deal with God and he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. Now, not everyone is bold enough to put those sentiments into words, but they still feel them. They attended church for a while, gave the church some money, invited the minister over for supper, bought an expensive Bible, and they did so under the assumption that this would put God under a debt of gratitude to them. And when problems came into their lives... They got disillusioned with Christianity and walked away. I scratch God's back. Why won't he scratch mine? If God is real, why is he letting this happen to me? And they cannot fathom that they have presented God with something he hates and then assumed that they could guilt trip him into serving their agenda because they did him the royal favor of missing the first NFL game on Sunday morning because they were at church. In my years as a Christian, I have read far too many accounts of people who once professed faith in God. Some were even respected preachers and authors who, quote, lost their faith and became professing atheists. And their stories are all the same. They had been living in sin throughout their entire, quote, Christian career. And when their God failed to come through for them, they congratulated themselves on having the bravery to admit that Christianity is fake. They lived as pagans, and when God treated them as such, they had the gall to complain about his fairness. Mark my words, the next time you hear of some prominent Christian claiming to have lost his or her faith, read their account of what happened, what led them to this, and without fail, you will discover that they had long been living in sin. They were engaged in fornication, extramarital affairs, sodomy, drug use, pornography, every single time. Acts 17.24 says that God is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. We do not make, create, or perform anything that places God under obligation. God has no need of anything. The idea that you can obligate God by your acts of worship is the height of folly. And when the Bible speaks of things made with hands, it's always referring to idolatry. And so this verse is telling us that to worship God, 
with the idea that he is therefore indebted to us is idolatrous worship. It's no different than the naked tribesman who drowns his baby in worship to the river god in exchange for a bountiful harvest. It is pure, unadulterated superstition. And that's why biblical religion is so opposed to the blasphemous doctrine of merit. There are many people who have grown weary of church because their expectations were way off target. The music doesn't arouse their emotions. The prayers are about God instead of about them. The hymns are about God's glory and not their experiences or desires. The sermons tell them what Christ has done for them instead of what they're supposed to do for Him, and so they feel disappointed. They may never verbalize it, but they truly believe deep in their heart that church is supposed to serve them rather than God. I mean, when have we ever heard, whether in song, in book, or in sermon, an appeal to trust in God that doesn't usually boil down to, He'll make your wildest dreams come true. The whole book of Malachi is addressed to this. Men worshiping God for personal ends and according to their own convenience and then feeling disillusioned when God expresses His displeasure. Men offering blind sheep and crippled oxen because, well, let's face it, that's certainly more convenient than offering the best of your herd. Men who claim to believe in God's unbreakable covenant with His church, casually breaking their own marriage covenants, which Ephesians 5 tells us is a picture of Christ and His church. Men who were ordained to represent Christ's priesthood, openly expressing boredom with their ministry. And God's response is... The only reason you find my worship tedious and boring is because your worship is illegitimate. If you worshiped my way, my blessing would accompany it. And that brings us to our third point, spiritual blindness, and we'll read verses 36 to 45. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. And therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Jonathan, Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so now I must die? Saul answered, God, do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. Saul's carnal religion 
made him grow more and more high-handed. If Saul were so concerned about God's honor, he would have waited for Samuel to offer the sacrifice. He wouldn't have the Ark of the Covenant out there with him on the battlefield. And he wouldn't be palling around with a defrocked priest. And now things get even worse. Saul's phony priest attempts to inquire of God for him, and God ignores them. And the reason is that God has rejected both Saul and his priest. He will not speak to them. So Saul decides to force God's hand. If God won't talk to me directly, I'll use the lot. The lot was a method occasionally used in the Old Testament to determine God's will. It had only two possible outcomes, like flipping a coin. So the outcome would be considered God's answer. Now, generally speaking, I think the lot is a presumptuous act because it's never presented in Scripture as the proper way to determine God's will. God's will has been revealed in His Word, particularly in the law. I mean, look, if you're considering asking one of two women out on a date and one of them is not a believer in Christ, holding the faith as it's revealed in Scripture, then you don't need to cast a lot. You don't need to ask God for a sign. It will never be God's will for you to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. If you want to do something that you deem harmless or even beneficial, but both of your parents object, it will never be God's will for you to dishonor your father and your mother. If God really wills that you do this thing, then he'll open your parents' eyes on this subject. But until he does, you have God's revealed will. You don't need to cast lots. You don't need a sign. But you see, ascertaining God's will by diligent study of the Bible is a lot more work than asking God for a sign. Ephesians 5.17 says, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I just, I just wish I knew what God's will was. Have you tried reading the Bible? And the blank stare you get in response tells you everything you need to know. This person doesn't really want to know what God's will is. If they did, they'd read the Bible to understand it. What they really want is God's sanction for what they've already decided to do. At least with the lot, you have a 50-50 shot at getting your way. And this mentality betrays the person's true beliefs. He thinks that the Bible is for devotional purposes only. It tells me how much God loves me and wants to make all my dreams come true. And it never occurs to him that God's word is binding on all matters of doctrine and practice. You have no moral right to, to believe or practice anything that isn't declared by Scripture to be God's will. You know, no one has ever tried Christianity and found out, hey, this doesn't work. No, what they found is that it involves things they don't like, and so they've left it untried. Saul's lot backfires, and Jonathan gets the short straw. And I want you to notice something about Jonathan. Since he has true faith, he accepts that the outcome is not dumb luck. God orders and controls even things that to us seem as trivial as flipping a coin 
And so Jonathan accepts that he must be guilty because he unwittingly broke his father's oath when he ate the honey. Now listen, Saul was foolish, and the people were right to save Jonathan from Saul's rash oath. But Jonathan's view of the binding nature of one's words was absolutely correct. In Matthew 12, 36 and 37, Jesus says, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be condemned, and by your words you will be justified. Saying, I didn't mean it, doesn't make it go away. You will stand before God, and you will give an account to Him of every single word you have ever spoken. And just because you've forgotten them doesn't mean God has. How many things have you offered to God that you've never actually given? How many resolutions have you made to read the Bible more regularly, and yet you still haven't read the whole thing even once? How many times have you resolved to pray every day and yet weeks pass without the least word spoken to the God whom you claim to love with your whole heart? This is the religion of Saul. He makes bold statements. Cursed be anyone who eats this day. Why have you acted treacherously? As the Lord lives, God do so and more. But you see, the only one who really understood and accepted the fact of moral responsibility for one's words was Jonathan. And he was prepared to die because of this conviction. He doesn't try to wiggle out of it. He doesn't plead for his life. He doesn't argue, Dad, when you made that oath, I was miles away. I didn't hear you. How can I be held accountable for what I had no way of knowing? Jonathan understood the significance of one's words. Saul had used God's name, and thus God's honor was bound up in his oath, even if it was a stupid one. Making oaths is extensively handled in the law, especially in Leviticus. And the law pronounces judgment on anyone who carelessly uttered an oath, whether the oath was to do good or evil. In other words, you were guilty of breaking an oath of the Lord if you failed to do what you swore, even if what you swore to do was wrong. You'd have been guilty of sinning had you fulfilled the oath because it was to do evil, and you would have been guilty of not fulfilling it because you had taken the Lord's name in vain to swear that you would do something. Jonathan understood this, and that's why he would not put his life above God's honor. A rash vow is still a vow. That's why the Bible says, do not be hasty in your heart to utter a word before God. After all, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. How many I do's have been sworn at God's altar that were later trampled in the mud as non-binding? Now, when God gave Israel a king, there was no reason to think that this kingdom wouldn't work like every other kingdom by a, by a line of descendants. If Saul could push back the Philistines, then Jonathan would inherit a safer, stronger kingdom. But through his carnal religion, Saul actually endangered Jonathan's life. The only thing that kept Jonathan alive that day was the fact that the people had more sense than Saul. They could see the obvious. If there was sin, it wasn't Jonathan's. If it were Jonathan's fault that God refused to answer Saul, 
then God wouldn't have given Israel victory that day by Jonathan's hand. Jonathan was the only one that day who hadn't sinned. The lot falling on him was God's way of exposing Saul's folly. When you refuse to own your own sins, your children will pay the price. Saul's oath put everyone in danger, but that didn't matter. Saul wanted the credit that was due to God alone. The people acknowledged that God had given them victory, and he wanted to say, them to say, Saul has given us the victory. And so Saul was quick to shift the blame. He had been rejected by God, and his priest had no more right to mediate Godward than the dog catcher. But Saul is ready automatically to, to suspect everyone but himself. Saul is the one who had acted foolishly that day, and yet he automatically interprets God's silence as a sign of sin in the congregation. Had, lot, had, had his lot worked out the way he wanted, some random unsuspecting soldier would have been executed that day for no reason. And so Jesus says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not perceive the plank in your own? When Samuel rebuked Saul for offering the sacrifice, Saul spouted a stream of excuses. He blamed Samuel for being late. He blamed the people for being reckless. He did everything but say, I have sinned. And carnal religion is like that. You can't take criticism without threatening to leave or pointing the finger at the critic's failings. In every situation where there's a conflict, you have to be right, even if that means the whole world is wrong. So let's sum up the characteristics of carnal religion that we have seen in our text. First of all, the sudden bursts of religious fervor in response to rebuke. Secondly, self-serving acts of worship. Thirdly, disregard for the church's welfare. And fourthly, shifting of blame and criticalness of others' sincerity. Now, the last verse of the chapter sums this all up for us. We read, Now, there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. Now, the words themselves sound like a good thing. Saul didn't want an army of cowards and fools. He wanted strong, intelligent warriors. But compare how Jonathan describes his victory, and you'll see the real issue here. When Jonathan routed the Philistines, he never claimed a shred of credit. He attributed it to God. But Saul takes men for himself. And in fact, back in verse 24, Saul wants revenge on my enemies. Whereas true believers say, the enemies of the Lord. The church's warfare is supposed to be the Lord's battles, not the building of a man's kingdom. Now, I hope you're able to see the relevance of these accounts to your life. These are not just stories with moral lessons. They're expressions of eternal truth. Paul writes, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. Let us pray.